0: Burke Ramsey sued CBS after a television series suggested he killed his six-year-old sister.
1: Remember, there's the fourth person, which is the brother. Burke. Yes, it could be him.
2: I believe that Burke is the killer of John Benet. Burke did not care that she was dead. Burke killed John Benet. No, absolutely not. Absolutely not.
1: Did the thought ever cross your mind? No.
2: Absolutely <laughs> not.
1: It's absurd. No. These days the most popular theory of the killing of Jean Benet Ramsey is the theory that she was killed by her nine-year-old brother, Burke. The reason this theory is so popular is because of a documentary that came out on CBS in 2016.
0: I'm Jim Clemente. I'm a retired FBI profiler. My name's Laura Richards. I'm a criminal behavioural analyst.
1: What we need to do is a complete reinvestigation.
0: This has never been done before. Although it claimed
1: to be a whole new investigation, in reality, the CBS show presents the arguments of James Kohler, an investigator who reviewed the entire case file back in 2005 and presented his evidence in a book called Foreign Faction, describing why he thinks Burke was the killer. On the surface, the Burke theory provides an easy explanation for why both parents would cover up this killing. According to this theory, John and Patsy were genuinely loving parents and were motivated by a desire to protect their remaining child. It's worth noting that we know less about Burke as a suspect compared to his parents. Only excerpts and summaries of Burke's police interviews have been released to the public And because Burke was a child, there's less definitive information out there about his life before the crime. So it's a lot easier to speculate. With this in mind, let's take a look at the evidence that's been presented against Burke Ramsey. First of all, the forensic case against Burke is fairly weak. There was a nightgown found with the blanket in the basement. Minuscule amounts of touch DNA on this nightgown were traced to Patsy and Burke. As we discussed in episode 3, and as even James Kohler has noted, there's no reason to think this DNA is relevant to the crime in any way. In fact, we would expect to find DNA from family members on items of Jean Benet's clothing. Based on what we know from the case files, there were no fibers or any other form of evidence to connect Burke to any of the objects actually used in the killing. His fingerprints, as well as Patsy's, were found on the bowl of pineapple, and his prints were on a glass found near that bowl. We'll talk more about the pineapple a little later. Probably the most compelling piece of evidence discussed in the CBS documentary is this shocking claim about Burke from family friend Judith Phillips.
0: I think he had a bad, uh, uh, Burke had a bad temper. It's like he had a chip on his shoulder. He had hit Jamine. They were playing in the yard, and apparently he hit her with a golf club. And how did you find out about this? Oh, I think I asked Patsy what the scar was. She said that the kids were playing and Burke lost his temper and hit her with a golf club.
1: Judith Phillips was not a witness to this event. She's repeating something she heard secondhand. By her own account, she only met Burke a handful of times, so I don't put much faith in her speculations about his personality. The significant part of her comment here is that she claims Patsy told her that Burke had, quote, lost his temper and become violent. This is very different to the account of the incident which Patsy gave in her 1998 police interview. She we was
0: out there with the, the little wiffle off ball, golf ball you know, and she walked up behind me about that time and clipped her around the
1: cheek. This is the same story that Burke told on Dr. Phil in 2016.
2: Did you hit your sister with a golf club? Not on purpose. She was standing behind me and I went like that. Was that on purpose? No. You, absolutely not. Did you intentionally hit John Bonet in the head with a golf club? No.
1: John also backs up this story, but admits he wasn't there. He was away on business. So he just believed what Patsy told him. As any parent knows, accidents like this are fairly common. In fact, Burke himself received a nasty black eye not long afterwards. Again, no witnesses, but according to Patsy, it was just another accident, this time involving a baseball. In most families, there would be nothing sinister about children getting injured like this. Then again, most families don't end up with a child murdered in their home. So it does raise a potential concern. At the very least, this golf club incident shows that despite his age, Burke was at least physically capable of seriously injuring his sister. However, I was unable to find any other indications of violence by Burke. As far as we know, nannies and housekeepers all reported Burke to be quite well-behaved. Proponents of the Burke theory often point to so-called behavioral analysis, indicating Burke's apparently abnormal response to his sister's death. In terms of their content, Burke's statements are not particularly alarming. Unlike his parents, who changed their stories drastically on several key points, Burke has always remained fairly consistent. On day one, Burke was taken out of the Ramsey home early, long before the body was found, to stay at the White's home. There, he was interviewed briefly by police. When asked about what happened the previous night, he says simply,
0: We got our PJs on and went to bed.
1: Burke gives very straightforward, seemingly relaxed responses, at one point talking about looking forward to their vacation. The detective who interviewed Burke, Fred Patterson, recalled, Based on the interview that I had with Burke, it appeared to me he had no idea that his sister was
2: dead. He only knew that his sister was missing. He appeared to be very outgoing, very forward with me, and he appeared to be completely honest.
0: Um, I got no indication that he was holding back anything, that he didn't witness anything.
1: James Kohler, on the other hand, considers Burke's responses suspicious. It seems to Kohler that Burke doesn't care about his sister's well-being. In my view, Burke's responses during his first interview are quite consistent with a child who simply didn't comprehend the seriousness of the situation.
2: Were you scared for John Bonet yet? I think I was trying to be positive.
1: Compare his behavior, for example, with that of Patsy, who was completely hysterical. From the very beginning, Patsy was acting as though she knew something horrific had taken place and Jean Bonet was not going to be found alive. Burke Ramsey, on the other hand, does not seem like someone who has just inadvertently murdered his sister. If he had, this nine-year-old was an incredibly good liar. An interview with Burke a week later with child psychologist Dr. Suzanne Bernard was also flagged as suspicious by James Kohler and the team from CBS, particularly a moment when Burke makes a violent gesture to imitate how the killer could have struck Sean Benet.
2: What do you think happened? I know what happened. I mean, when she got killed. How do you think that happened? Uh, I think. Well, I, I, I asked my dad where did they find her body, and my dad, my dad said I found it down in the basement. And so I, I, I think that someone took her very quietly and mm-hmm. took her down the basement, and then maybe took a knife out, and went, you know, or something like that. hmm. think
0: that's
2: how she died. Or maybe a hammer sure. in the head, maybe.
1: Dr. Bernard herself did not find any reason, based on her interview with Burke, to suspect he was the killer. From the interview, it is clear that Burke was not a witness to John Bonet’s death. He does not appear
0: fearful at home, however, he seems somewhat disconnected and isolated in his family.
1: However, on the CBS show, Jim Clementi and Laura Richards seem to consider Burke's responses highly suspicious. You see that? That's, that's a physical demonstration.
0: You know, it's just at odds that he's acting it out at all anyway. I mean, most children would not kind of future project this or reenact it in a room. He seems to have gone into sort of playful mode and Oops. the tone of it is completely off.
1: There is no emotion, no appropriate emotion at all about this happening to his sister. The notion that there is some kind of appropriate emotion for a grieving child is totally false. It's a myth that has been thoroughly debunked by psychologists. People grieve in many different ways. Not all people are comfortable showing vulnerability or emotion, particularly around people they don't know. Boys, especially, are not always forthcoming about their feelings. More fundamentally, the CBS team is totally ignoring the context of Burke's family let's step back and remember the family dynamic we're dealing with here. On the one hand, Burke's father is John Ramsey, someone who's been called the Ice Man for his calm, emotionless demeanor. On the other hand, his mother is Patsy, the woman who was always positive, who was a master of putting up a front. We have a family situation in which there was, according to numerous witnesses, a profound lack of communication about real issues as someone raised in this context, it's not surprising at all that Burke is emotionally closed off and guarded in his responses to these highly personal questions.
2: Well, what about for you and your parents? You know, parents are sometimes crying. But. Yeah. But I'm, I'm right. basically just going on with my life, mm-hmm. you know?
0: That's a odd turn of phrase, to just go on with your life when your sister's been murdered and found in your house. I'm not sure you can just go on with your life.
1: Anyone with the slightest understanding of this family dynamic could see this child is clearly uncomfortable about having to express or even process his emotional response to such a bizarre and surreal event as his sister's murder.
2: I think I felt a little awkward talking about it and... I think it was just something that I thought everyone knew, and so it's like, why are you asking me about this again? I'm not saying I moved on then, it might have been kind of the other end as I didn't really get it.
1: In fact, when James Kohler met with Dr. Bernard and asked her about the possibility that Burke was some kind of sociopath, she specifically rejected that idea.
0: Dr. Bernard explained that anxiety such as that displayed by Burke at points in his interview comes from caring and that this type of behavior is not typically observed in sociopathic personalities. She indicated that some of Burke's behavior could more likely be indicative of a dysfunctional environment.
1: The CBS team's analysis, which seems to consist entirely of saying things are odd, totally ignores the issue of this dysfunctional environment. They make no attempt to look at it in any detail. Instead, it seems to me, they're just trying to fit Burke into this stereotype of a psychopathic killer child. So let's look beyond behavioral evidence. To further support his theory about Burke's secret deviant personality, James Kohler also tells us in Foreign Faction
0: that Housekeeper Geraldine Vodica stated that Burke had smeared feces on the walls of a bathroom during his mother's first bout with cancer.
1: Even though that was three years before the killing, Kohler hypothesizes that Burke could have continued to exhibit bizarre fecal smearing behavior at the time of the murder. He points to the soiled gray pants found in Jean Benet's bathroom and the feces found in Jean Benet's bed on a prior occasion. But I see no reason to assume that Burke was responsible for any feces in Jean Benet's bedroom. We know for a fact Jean Benet herself had a problem with soiling. Multiple witnesses testified to this. This was her room. Given what we know about Jean Benet's history, in my view, it's quite a stretch to blame Burke for these incidents, based solely on something that happened three years earlier. Another piece of evidence raised during the CBS special is the claim that Burke's voice can be heard on the 911 call. The Ramseys, including Burke, claim he was upstairs in his bedroom and was not in the kitchen where that call was made. But some investigators, including James Kohler, claim Burke's voice can be heard faintly right at the end of the recording. Here's the clip. Well, I am,
0: honey. Please. Take a deep breath Please. Me, okay? Sorry, hurry, hurry, hurry. Patsy? 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 Patsy. Patsy.
1: And here's the so-called enhanced version played on the CBS show.
2: Patsy? Patsy?
1: The CBS team clearly thinks this is a big deal.
0: Oh, wow. Oh, my God.
1: This is hugely significant. I mean, this changes things. Interestingly, in 2019, a scientific study was conducted using this audio from the 911 call And a group of 78 participants. Not one of them identified the words that the CBS team and Kohler claimed to have heard, even when listening to the enhanced version. As stated in that study,
0: Certainly there is nothing in the acoustics to support these particular phrases over any of many other phrases that might vaguely fit the rhythm of the audio, and even less to enable reliable identification of particular family members as speakers.
1: In fact, the dispatcher who took that 911 call, Kim Archuleta, had a completely different theory of what she says she heard at the end of that call.
2: It sounded like she said, okay, we've called the police, now what? And that
1: disturbed me. She also never specifically says that she heard Burke.
0: Sounded like there were two voices in the room, maybe three.
1: Given the various theories out there about what may or may not be on that tape, it's hard to listen without some kind of cognitive bias at play. It could be Burke Ramsey. It could be the voice of someone in the room with the dispatcher. It could be Patsy sobbing. It could be a bird flying past the window. The hope that there's some kind of smoking gun evidence hidden on the 911 tape seems to me like wishful thinking. And even if that is Burke's voice, I don't see why it would point to Burke as the killer, as opposed to either of his parents. Another piece of evidence that Kohler says points to Burke is two small marks found on Jean Benet's lower back. According to his book, the marks line up with the prongs of some of Burke's toy train tracks. This led Kohler to speculate that Burke could have used the train tracks to prod Jean Benet so hard that he broke the skin. According to Dr. Werner Spitz on CBS,
0: If you look carefully at those two marks, there is a central defect within each of the marks. That defect is from something penetrated through the skin...
1: Interestingly, back in 2002, Dr. Spitz had a different theory of what caused those marks. He told a different CBS show that he thought the marks were made by, quote, pebbles or rocks on the floor of the basement. The CBS show also doesn't mention that the prongs of those train tracks are round, whereas the abrasions are clearly not. Evidently, toy train tracks are a possibility, but they are by no means the only things in that house that could have caused those abrasions. When a child has been assaulted, as Jean Benet clearly had been, it's not unusual to find abrasions. There was a potential struggle, the handling and moving of the body, the rough concrete floor of the cellar, which we know was littered with broken Christmas ornaments and other debris, I think we need to be careful with the assumption that two tiny abrasions on the body necessarily tell us anything new about the crime. In fact, as we'll discuss in the next episode, the only reason anyone attached any special importance to these marks in the first place was because of Lou Smith's reinterpretation of the evidence. The final piece of evidence supposedly pointing to Burke is the pineapple. We've talked about how the pineapple proves that jean Benet was awake after getting home from the White's house. James Kohler and CBS take it a step further.
2: I think if Virk was upset about circumstances or Christmas presents, he probably would have been upset about her trying to snag a piece of pineapple out of anger. He may have struck her with that flashlight.
1: This could have been the tipping point that started the entire cascade of events. I'm afraid I don't see the logic here. This was a crime with vaginal trauma. There was clearly some kind of assault to the genitals, and a concerted attempt to cover up that assault with a financial motive. The notion of a fight over some pineapple explains nothing about the crime. It makes very little sense. The fact that Jean Benet ate from that bowl of pineapple that night doesn't mean it had anything to do with the motive. In fact, we can't assume the bowl was even put there that night. Patsy claimed she completely forgot what they had for lunch on Christmas Day before leaving for the whites. She never outright denied that the children may have had pineapple. She always said she didn't remember. Burke has said it's quite possible that they did eat pineapple at some point earlier that day. Did you
2: and she eat pineapple together at any time during the day? Maybe. Like, I don't remember specifically eating pineapple, but very well could have. Like, would you remember eating pineapple 20 years ago? Like, you know.
1: I think it's quite plausible that that bowl had been left out from an earlier meal. Jean Benet could have taken a piece of pineapple as she passed by after getting home from the Whites. Perhaps no one even noticed. That would explain why they didn't factor it into their story about Jean Benet falling asleep in the car. So as you can see, the evidence apparently pointing to Burke is a bit of a mess. How does it all come together? Well, unfortunately, James Kohler doesn't provide a specific sequence of events in his book. We can begin, once again, with the Ramseys arriving home from the Whites' party. John says when they got home, he helped Burke to assemble a toy in the living room before putting him to bed. It's unclear if Burke has confirmed this or not, as that part of his interviews has never been made public. It's reasonable to assume a sequence similar to what we talked about in the last episode. Just like in that scenario, Jean Benet has time to partially get changed when she's sexually assaulted. It would of course be unusual for a nine-year-old to commit sexual assault. But studies show this can happen. It's conceivable that what started as innocent curiosity could have led to a violent encounter when Jean Benet resisted or threatened to tell on Burke. In the course of this violence, according to the theory, Burke strikes Jean Benet, rendering her unconscious. Then, at some point, Patsy Ramsey finds out. Some variants include John finding out during the night as well, but let's leave him out of it for the sake of simplicity. Now remember, according to this theory, Burke is the abuser. In this theory, Patsy Ramsey was genuinely a loving mother who was never abusive to her daughter. Patsy's reaction, according to this theory, after discovering her seriously wounded daughter is not to call an ambulance or to try to save Jean Benet's life, but rather to take drastic action to protect Burke. In this sequence, Patsy proceeds to construct that so-called garrote and tie it around her daughter's neck as well as writing the ransom note all to cover for Burke and maintain that perfect family image. Burke supposedly goes back to bed then later returns to the kitchen coincidentally during the 911 call. After the police arrive he's sent off to the White's house where he manages, unlike his parents, to expertly fool the police with his cavalier attitude raising no suspicion whatsoever despite just having murdered his sister. Needless to say, this is a fairly convoluted sequence. The reason it seems a little strange is that we have two separate offenders with two separate motives. Not only do we have to accept that one family member, in a moment of extreme anger, made the decision to strike Jean Benet hard enough to fracture her skull, we also have to accept that a second family member made the separate independent decision to strangle their child for the sake of the cover-up. For me, this is a bit of a stretch. In a recent interview, John Ramsey discussed this theory.
2: Let's assume that, that Burke accidentally or intentionally uh, hit John Manet, as this CBS documentary claims, what would you do as a parent? Would you say, okay, well, let's strangle her, let's, let's write a three-page ransom note, and let's fake the whole thing? No, you just said, let's get her to the hospital immediately. It, it's just crazy.
1: I don't often agree with John, but in this instance, I have to say he has a point. This is the biggest problem, in my view, with the Burke theory. The motives are just too muddled. There are some fringe theories that try to resolve this problem by claiming that Burke not only struck Jean Benet in a moment of anger, but also made that so-called garrote. But this makes even less sense. For one, there's no motive for him to do that. Two, the fibers consistent with Patsy's jacket were tied into the knots of that device. And three, the garrote is clearly part of the fake kidnapping described in the ransom note. I have no doubt that the same flamboyant individual who came up with SBTC also made that fake garrote. I think we have to remember Occam's Razor. It's possible to have a perfectly logical theory with just one offender, with one consistently evolving motive. History tells us that child murderers often go to great lengths to protect themselves and cover up what they've done driving long distances to dispose of the body, like Chris Watts, or concocting elaborate stories, like Susan Smith. We know that people can be very good liars, even living double lives that their closest family members have no idea about. We know that people will do virtually anything to cover for themselves. It's a lot harder to find an example of somebody going to such absurd lengths to cover for somebody else. Of course, there's a first time for everything, but when I look at the physical evidence, I just don't see any compelling reason to think Burke was involved. Although James Kohler and the CBS team seem unanimous in their belief in Burke's guilt, real-life investigators were less convinced. The independent prosecutor Mike Kane, the man who presented the evidence to the grand jury, specifically rejected the theory that Burke was the killer in an interview with the Denver Post.
0: In his review of evidence, Kane said, I just didn't see anything to support that theory. The Boulder
1: police have also stated on more than one occasion that Burke is not considered a suspect. Why is it that we feel the need to bring in another offender for that initial head blow? Why do we feel the need to separate the staging from the crime. Perhaps one reason that people gravitate towards Burke as the killer is because John and Patsy have done such a good job of making themselves look good. Pointing the finger at Burke makes it much easier to dodge the uncomfortable possibility that a seemingly normal, loving parent could be secretly abusive. In other words, perhaps even people who suspect the Ramses have swallowed part of the Ramseys' media campaign without knowing it. People have also been strongly influenced by Burke's interview with Dr. Phil in 2016. The interview was an obvious attempt by the Ramseys to torpedo James Kohler's theory ahead of the CBS broadcast, but it backfired when viewers were put off by Burke's awkward demeanor.
2: Many who tuned
1: into Dr. Phil's exclusive interview were kind of creeped out.
0: I look at this as one of the most disturbing interviews I've seen. It's as though he's not socialized, he doesn't know how to react.
1: As I mentioned before, a lot of Burke's weirdness in the interview just comes from his emotionally closed-off personality, which in turn comes from his parents. I don't think it's necessarily suspicious to be resistant to intrusive questioning about childhood trauma from someone like Dr. Phil. On a deeper level, it's also clear that Burke is just not comfortable engaging with the reality of what happened that night. There's a kind of mental barrier. Remember that, unlike John and Patsy, Burke never had a choice about his participation in this cover up. He was nine years old, and I'm sure for a long time he believed everything John and Patsy told him. The narrative that life with Jean Benet was all happy families was drummed into Burke from an impressionable age. It's not at all unusual for two siblings to have completely different experiences with a parent who has been abusive. And remember what Dr. Bernard noted back in 1997. He seems somewhat disconnected and isolated in his family. Before the killing, it would have been easy for Burke to escape into his video games and remain unaware of any hidden dysfunction in the home. And obviously after the crime, the Ramseys made sure to be devoted model parents for Burke.
2: You cannot recall a time in your life that you ever saw your mother fly into a rage. No. She wasn't into corporal punishment. She didn't spank you all. No, we never got, yeah, we didn't get spanked. Just nothing of the sort, not even close. Not to say she never got upset, but nothing near like laying a finger on us, you know let alone killing her child.
1: Burke is deeply invested in the belief that both John and Patsy were fundamentally good people and gentle, kind parents. As a result of all this, I can see why looking too closely at the facts of the tragedy that night makes Burke deeply uncomfortable. He obviously knows the evidence doesn't add up, So, thinking logically about the events of that night would mean questioning everything he knows about his parents. We need to acknowledge again how hard it is to accept that somebody close to you, somebody who seems kind and caring, could ever have committed abuse. I think this is a big reason for Burke's apparent lack of emotion. That mental barrier prevents him from engaging too closely with the events of that night.
2: Did the handwriting look familiar to you at all? No. I don't know. I've never really looked at it closely because I'll see it and kind of get taken aback. And it's not something I really want to look at, (laughs) like, a lot, you know?
1: Clearly, Burke is keeping himself at a distance. He just doesn't want to go there.
2: I don't want to go there.
1: No. Denial, in cases of child abuse, is extremely common and I think it explains Burke's behavior pretty comprehensively. Nevertheless, people still can't seem to let go of this idea that Burke is secretly a psychopathic, evil, killer child, like something out of a horror film. One has to wonder, why are people so insistent on viewing this killing as the act of a psychopath when there's really no evidence that it was? Even James Kohler has called this a cold-blooded crime, but the evidence suggests that this was a momentary act of anger, a crime of passion. So where does that idea come from? This is something we'll talk about in our next episode, when we finally look at the intruder theory.